Edward Welch's groundbreaking book, When People Are Big and God is Small, has sold more than a quarter million copies since it was first released and has helped countless people in their struggles with codependency, peer pressure, and fear of man. This spring, PNR Publishing is pleased to announce the release of a comprehensively revised new edition. Learn how to need people less and love people more in this important update to a classic work of biblical counseling, available wherever books are sold. Anchored Hope provides practical help to those hurting by anchoring their hope in Jesus and helping others gain a better understanding of His promises. We offer reputable biblical counsel to those suffering or experiencing difficult seasons. Our counselors are highly trained and bring a vast experience in addressing the various issues of life. To meet with a counselor, visit anchoredhope.co to find a counselor that fits your needs and schedule an appointment today. Our guest today on This Versus That is my good friend Deepak Raju. Deepak serves as the pastor of biblical counseling and family ministry at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He and his wife, Sarah, have five kids, and he's the author of several books, including On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse in the Church, as well as a 31-day devotional, Pornography, Fighting for Purity. He serves on the board of directors of the Biblical Counseling Coalition and is also a trustee for the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. I love this conversation with Deepak. It is on anxiety versus fear. Deepak is great with this topic because he is a real friend and he's a great counselor. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's our conversation. Deepak Reju, thank you so much for being with us. It's really a pleasure to have you. And we are really excited to talk to you about this issue of anxiety and how we think about anxiety versus fear. And just to, one of the reasons this is on our radar is because we keep track of the issues coming our way at Anchored Hope. And every month, anxiety and worry are at the top of the list in terms of the issues that people are coming to counseling for. And so it's really in our interest to think carefully about this. And so we're we're thankful for your willingness to kind of think with us. When when we think about this issue, I think there are a lot of words that tend to cluster together regarding these troubling things that occupy our hearts and minds. So some of the words that come to mind are concern, fear, anxiety, worry. So Deepak, where would you make distinctions between those words and where would you see some overlap between them? Yeah. So let's think about it. You got consider a spectrum of anxiety. You just got the, the low grade anxiety. I'm walking around every day. I've got fears in the back of my mind that are playing there, whether I like it or not. So in my case, you know, my father died of a heart attack when he was in his mid fifties. My paternal grandfather died of a heart attack in his mid fifties. So there's a real fear that my wife and I have. If I don't stay healthy, I'll go the way. Control generation, low grade anxiety that sits back there all the time, all the way to the other end of continuum, panic attacks. Like you, you, the, the anxiety so overtakes your life. There's a bodily reaction that creates a huge crisis event at the moment of a, of a panic attack. Well, fear, anxiety, worry, concern, there's all kinds of words that we associate it with. I think most of those words are synonyms. I think mm -hmm. most of them 
like I would exchange anxiety, worry, concern. I just, I don't, I'm going to make that much of a distinction between them, even if I look at the language biblically, what they're referring to. But I'm going to put fear in a different category compared to all of them. So I think fear, if we're going to describe it, is what you normally associated with, you know, an unbiblical fear is when we dread or feel apprehension about a perceived or temporal danger. So I, I, I am scared of like snakes and alligators. <laughs> Don't meet in the reptile room at the zoo. I, I'm not going to be scared. I have a, you need to come visit I, me in Florida. We have lots okay, of alligators well, here. Well, I, I have a kid who hates heights and she's not really good when we're at the tallest, the, the, the upper floor of a really tall building. Well, that we're all, we're all. We're all accustomed to those kinds of fears, health issues, uh, other people's opinions, fear of another person, just different kind of dangers that we're associating. And so a lack of control is a common way people understand or to express their anxiety. But when we fear something, anxiety is expressed. So I'm going to call the anxiety the outward expression of deeper fears. There, there, there are all kinds of fears. Have. So I'm going to worry, stress, panic, nervousness, feeling overwhelmed, fretfulness, agitation, apprehension. I'm all putting in this realm of anxiety and worry, mm. but I'm putting fear separate from it. Like not just this dread and apprehension of the temporal danger. The reason why I do that is because we understand biblical fear. Also, the other use of that word is all in honoring of God himself. Mm. So there's two uses of fear in the Bible. There's fear of a perceived danger, but then there's fear of God, fear of the Lord, Proverbs chapter one. Where I was looking at this morning, my devotional time, I was looking at Job 28, talks about the fear of the Lord as the wisdom chapter in Job. So yeah, an awe and honoring and a revering of the Lord is the, the kind of, the, the, the biggest, most substantial fear you could ever have. But don't think of it like scary, scared, scared of spiders, scared of heights fear. This is awe and reverence, just kind of a robust biblical fear, which is why I put it, I'm going to create two buckets. What do we say? Anxiety, worry, stress, panic, nervousness, feeling overwhelmed, fretfulness, agitation, apprehension. I'm just putting all of those as synonyms over here. What we normally associate when somebody uses the term anxiety. I'm, I'm saying, okay, that all that is biblical fear. There's some perceived danger that we're dealing with, or as I'll sometimes say it, there's a competition between the object of our fear and God himself. Hmm. And our heart is wrestling with those things. And then biblically, I think there's a biblical fear, which is the honoring and rearing of God. I'm putting it over on that side, that, that bucket. And that's like, it's a whole different kind of fear, but they're related. But I just want to start there with those categories. What do you think? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, so in my mind, as a parent, I'm thinking there are moments where I should be concerned. Like, I automatically go to parenting. But there, there are areas in our life where if something particular poses itself, the correct emotional response is a red flag. It's to be, maybe, it, it, I'm using that word concerned. If we're using that definition, does that make the concern wrong? 
or is the concern that natural, healthy, godly expression of I'm recognizing there's a red flag there? Yeah. Well, you know, in the, in the range of what anxiety or worry could be, there's healthy concern. Mm-hmm. Oh, if my kids in D.C. ventured into certain parts of the city at the wrong hour, mm-hmm. potentially venturing into danger, that's a good and healthy concern. That's not the range of concern we're dealing with when we're talking about it. As counselors, typically, we're talking about the ungodly, sinful preoccupation with a danger that overtakes us in a way that has more control of my heart and life than it should. Mm-hmm. That, that's the kind of anxiety, fretfulness, worry, concern that we're normally dealing with in the counseling. And I'm trying, so I want to acknowledge there's a healthy concern. We all have versions of healthy concern. Oh, I mentioned my fear of like dying the way of my dad. Well, that fear motivates me to exercise. Mm -hmm. It, It makes me be more diligent about that. Well, that's a healthy concern to have those fears in that regard. But I'm trying to move us from the unbiblical fear, the anxiety, the worry that we're thinking about to the more biblical fear of letting the fear of the Lord be the predominant thing that motivates. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think culturally speaking, anxiety has become just this natural thing that everyone deals with. Like having anxiety is very normalized. And as you're describing it, you're describing it as sin, which is the opposite of what normal should be. And so should we distinguish different kinds of anxiety or do you think all of that preoccupation is that the word it's not the word preoccupation yeah you got it preoccupation thanks Deepak uh is it always thin or is there a point where uh your body takes over and you are not in control yeah now always is an awkward word because if you pride always then you're like you're taking every scenario but Um, is it more awkward than preoccupation I'm still not saying it right (laughs) Preoccupy. All right, but I think I think you 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 hit on something in terms of there is a version of healthy concern that I wouldn't call a sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, That that if I'm standing in an alley and a guy walks up to my wife and I in an alley and pulls out a gun, I I now motivated to the the fight or flight response that's going to be natural in terms of my reaction. And as I, as a biblical man, want to step in front of my wife to protect her from a gun. I mean, there's a lot of fear in that moment that's captivated. I'm, I am fearing the danger that's there, but that fear is motivating me to good things. So is there a good concern wrapped in that? Yes. Uh, in, in dealing with the fear. Is there a good concern in me caring about my kids wandering to a dangerous part of the city? Yes. Is there a plane? place where that becomes controlling and it actually orients me towards ungodly responses, yeah, probably. I could get so preoccupied with my health concerns, it overtakes my life. Right, uh, yeah. And that, that's where it slips into an ungodly era overall. But yes, a lot of the fear and concern and worry and agitation we deal with is, is sinful. Not, is all of it sinful? No, but a lot of it is. So to get a kind of an ultimate example here, when we think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, something is happening there in his soul that he's experiencing in his humanity 
I think the, the ESV translates Jesus' words in Matthew as my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So is there any overlap between what Jesus is experiencing there in the garden, which we know we know is a sinless expression of of sorrow because Jesus is sinless and he's doing so in, in perfect relationship with his father. But is there any overlap between that and our experience of anxiety and anticipating something painful that we might know is coming in our lives? Yeah, I mean, let's, so let's, I don't know if I'm going to create heresy here, but let's go ahead and give it a try. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> oh, bye. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll be breaking new ground as a podcast. <laughs> All right. But the, the, the divine side of it is what you're describing, the sinless savior in a unique redemptive relationship, which is the father and the son. So there's, there's something that's different about that fundamentally from us and in redemptive historical terms, like Jesus is about to go to the cross and create the event that is catastrophically different than anything else in all of history that reorients all of our lives. So yes, there's something very unique about that, but then divide the question, but there, but we're talking about the incarnate savior who has a humanity. So is there something that we can relate to on the human side of that, the anxiety that's me, created, the overwhelming nature of that, you know, the, the looking towards the cross and seeing the kind of pain and hurt and probably fear, but more so what's all that under? It's under the wrath of God. Mm. So he bears the judgment of God in a way that none of us ever will. And yet the weight of that presses down on his humanity. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this gets very much into like, do we have a high priest who actually gets what we've gone through because he himself has had to face it. And yet in unlike us who gives into like gives into our anxieties or worries and gives into our temptations. We, we never feel the full force of something in a way that Jesus did. Because mm -hmm. Je Jesus, Jesus doesn't, it, this, this is the, the sinless savior lasts and doesn't give into the temptation. Or the sinless savior lasts and doesn't give into the fear in the way in our humanity we do. So in that sense, Jesus gets it much more than we do. Mm. If we even talk about the anxiety and fear, he experienced it in a way, in the full force of it, that we never will because he never gave into his fears in the sinful way that we described earlier. There's a sense in which the experience is more intense for him than it ever could be for us because we couldn't even fully envision what it means to be subject to the wrath of God in that sense. Like he knows perfectly what that means, which means the, uh, uh, and, and hopefully I'm not, entering into the realm of speculation here, but it, it seems that that experience of fear is more intense than what we would experience because of the, the perfect knowledge he has of what he's about to do. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was saying Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And that's where I, I hate double negatives that can always confuse the living dick and that'll be bug. On, on 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Flip it over. What does that mean? We have a high priest who is able. Mm. 
to sympathize with our weakness. That's the high priest gets it in a way that we never fully will, will because I live by my fear sinfully. And it dictates the pace of my life in a way it shouldn't. Mm. And that's, that's the control part of fear. That's the sinful part of it. It, it. it takes over in a way. You go to extreme, that's a panic attack. Mm. Not just mental and emotional, now it's physical. It's really overrided my operating system. But that's the beauty of it. Jesus gets it. I love that it dictates it, that even using that phrase, I think is really clear because it's important to see what Jesus actually did in the garden. The response to his anxiety was to press into the father, to pray, to spend time, to ask the father for help. And he knew that the father would give him exactly what he needed. And then his display of, or de declaration, if you will, of, but I will obey no matter what you, you choose, God, father, I will obey. And, and that really leads us to getting really practical there. The fear and anxiety didn't dictate what Jesus did. His desire to be in a relationship with a father is what dictated his, his response to that, yes. which is really beautiful. There's so much hope in that because he responded perfectly. We have the power within us, with the spirit of God to do the same thing, which gives us hope as we experience those things that feel totally overwhelming, right? Yeah, that's right. And so thinking about how to begin to help people with anxiety, fundamental to it is going to be our orientation towards the father, our orientation towards our Savior. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a pet peeve I have is oftentimes you hear people in terms of methodology prescribed, like, go ahead, take one verse, memorize it. <laughs> somehow it has some med magical incantation to make your anxiety go away as if a huge mm. emotional experience of anxiety can be cognitively like wiped away by one simple verse. Mm. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Rebecca. It's like, no, actually, Jesus made to the cross because the father not only gave him what he needed, he, he chose to obey the father. There's an intimacy in the relationship with the father that t shows us like mm. how, fundamentally how we're going to get through anxiety. It's, it's not a system and it's not methodology. It's relationship. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's a person of Christ and his presence in my life that's going to make him. Now, I've got some practical suggestions of what we could do that all add into the battle with anxiety. But if we get down to it, like I use the illustration of my kids, you imagine the scene in the pool and a kid on the edge of, of, of one of the ledges about to jump in the water or going to jump into your arms. And everybody's can been, been in that moment where you have a young kid scared of the water and what's going to make them leap in the water? Not because they have fancy swimming techniques that they got from their lessons last week, not because of like something amazing about my strength or ability. It's because that kid loves and trusts me. Mm -hmm. they'll, leap, they'll leap from that ledge into my arms and take the risk. Well, it's the same thing. It's like when I'm in the midst of my anxiety, it's not, what am I going to do? It's like, who do I trust right now? So like, if, with that being the case, what are the, when you're working with someone who's struggling with anxiety, what are the aspects of God's character that you want to help them? Maybe the aspects that are truncated in their view be, as they're experiencing anxiety. And what are the 
aspects of his character that you really want to expand and, and highlight as you're helping them trust their father? Yeah. So like the, the flip side of anxiety is control. That, that's the other side of that same coin. And it's there, the, the response to anxiety is trying to regain control of their life and oftentimes not understanding what it means to, for example, sit under the sovereignty of God mm. and give over the control to him. To trust things that they feel like they need to control to deal with the danger, give that over to him, which is a huge thing to be able to do. That, that would be one. Another common struggle is in the midst of the danger, not feeling forgotten, not feeling loved, not being remembered. So some, some version of feeling that God's goodness is not demonstrated to you. And, and, and it's articulated in lots of different ways. God doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't care for me. God's not involved in my life. He doesn't, doesn't really, I don't seem to matter to him. Some variation of that kind of self-talk is often articulated in terms of a person's relationship with, with God. So with our, with our counseling team, I, I nicknamed that God talk. You listen for the person's mm -hmm. God that describes their own personal relationship with the Lord. And you hear the expressions of their unbelief or doubts about God's character towards them. Yeah, that's so helpful. I think we, we often experience anxiety as if it's just a statement of reality or a, a perfect prediction of what's going to happen. And uh, so often anxiety functions like a false prophet, right? It's, it's making prop, it's saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you can expect. And uh, most often it's not true. And so, uh, you know, just even personifying it in that way of there is a narrative to anxiety, things that are being said, things that are, that it's asking you to believe that run contrary to the, to the character of the father, run contrary to his, his word and his promises. So love that, that emphasis. How do you help the person who is anxious about being anxious, right? Like they, they've identified anxiety as a, as a real big problem. And in a sense, they have kind of worked themselves up and I've experienced this in my own life. Like I, I shouldn't be feeling anxious. I don't want to feel anxious. I need to get past this. And because it's not happening very fast, I start to feel anxious about my struggle with anxiety. Yeah. Well, let's think, think about a couple of different levels, like uh, heart, head, and body. So one, one reality is in the, and I, I, I hate to say it this way, but I feel like the movement often doesn't care as much about the embodied experience mm -hmm. regards taking seriously the physical aspects of me being embodied soul. And yet... Mm -hmm. Uh, often there's a cognitive approach to like feeding enough verses into a person to think that their magical work will be done to, and yet I need to help a person learn to deal with their embodied experience. So everything from as simple as teaching them breathing techniques to help them to learn to relax their body to, the, to physical exercise that counters the anxiety experience. There's just all kinds of practical things that you can do. And the worse you get along, the more you get along that continuum to get to panic attacks where there's an embodied experience taking over. So it's not just cognitive and emotional anymore. Now the physical reality has taken, taken the lead in the whole situation. The more important it is to learn something as simple as deep breathing to control the hyperventilator. 
So there are practical things that you, we can teach people to learn to deal with their bodies that can help that experience. So that's the embodied part of it. So, you know, uh, I've got a, you know, let's take, take a couple examples of different kinds of scenarios. Person who has panic attacks on airplanes. You know, mm -hmm. once the floor is shut and they're going to take off, it like it breaks out. Well, you have to help them because the anxiety begins from the very beginning of the day. From the moment they wake up on the day they have the flight, the thoughts are racing. Mm -hmm. The emotions are getting attached to that. And the, all along the way, the closer they get to the airport, the more the physical reality begins to kick in uh, as, as we're getting that experience. So I need to help train them to learn to relax from the very beginning, to have the proper breathing. But that's a part of the, it. It doesn't just happen like that. We train to learn how to do that. Of course, it's Heart, uh, as we're thinking about it, what's my or orientation towards God? Everything we talk about, about the character of God. Like, do I, do I act, uh, do I act like an atheist in that moment? Mm. Do I become blind to any reality of God in the midst of anxiety? Yeah. A and functional atheist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly it. It's like, I'm, my nickname for that is momentary atheist. Every Christian becomes a momentary atheist. We, we drop God out of the picture. We ask, act as if he doesn't exist. And so now I'm oriented around my fears or the danger I'm not, I, I have no perception of God in this part of my universe right now. And so I want to, I want to help the people to, by breaking God into that part of their life, mm -hmm. helping my heart to understand where unbelief is showing up. So what's, what's the centerpiece of Matthew 6 when Jesus talks about anxiety and fear is this phrase, oh, you of little faith. That little phrase is like a nuclear bomb in the middle of that text. Because it's calling out unbelief. And that's the orientation towards the father. So that's hard. Mind is like, yeah, we've got to deal with all the different kinds of thoughts we wrestle with that are typical of our anxiety patterns. It could be very different for different people. So, so somebody could be thinking like, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die on the plane. Somebody else could be thinking something very different like, I'm, I'm fearful of and fill in the blank, whatever, whatever it is. I need to, because, you know, what's not surprising is if you ask somebody about that thought pattern, they'll be able to, with some help, explain it to you. What's unusual is them to have answers for their thought patterns. Like they don't know what to say or how to speak into it. And so it's no surprise that thought pattern, the volume is turned up pretty high. And that's all they hear. That's all that's radiating through their, their, their mind and their heart. So a godless approach, you know, unbelief, you, you, the volume's turned up and all these kind of deceptive lies of anxiety scream loudly in your brain and your body's like now getting overtaken. It's like that's a, yeah. that's, a, that's a colossal storm that has just hit when you combine both the body, the heart, and the mind like colliding together. I renovate houses and we've recently had a brand new house that's on the market and it had a small plumbing leak somewhere. Okay. And this is your worst nightmare when you're trying to sell a house because the house is beautiful. It's completely renovated. And then there's this like trickle of a, mm. and it's a slab. It's not a pier and beam, which means we got to like dig and find the problem. But 
without fixing that problem, you can't sell the house because you have this trickle of a leak and nobody's going to buy a house that, that has a slab leak, of course, right? So we had to dig trenches around the entire house for the last mm. several weeks trying to find this tiny crack. I mean, literally the size of a pinhole somewhere. And I, I think about that in terms of anxiety, you know, in some ways it can be a helpful red flag of there's this pattern of unbelief right here. And it is the tiniest pinpoint. It's a trickle. It's not like gushing out of the walls. It's just, it's barely detectable unless you do some real work to dig and find it. And I think that anxiety is often like that, where it's this slow trickle that you don't really realize that's there until something happens. And then all of a sudden you're like, I have a real problem and I can't even figure out where it is. And, and with anxiety, I think we think about it as some really terrible thing because our culture's wrought with anxiety. I mean, it's just it's like it gets worse and worse and worse. I think about it with my kids even and beginning to help them even to, like find patterns of anxiety in their life. But we see it as a bad thing. And I wonder if even posing it as such a negative, awful thing that you're going to experience in your life, maybe we should reframe it to be, yeah, this is something that we everyone is going to experience. And it's actually God's gift to us to recognize there's a, there's a tiny leak somewhere. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I love the way you're describing that. It's a great word picture because we spend a lot of time managing the out, outward aspects of anxiety, all the fretfulness. But mm. we're not going for the tiny leak that that like right. a little faith unbelief that sits very much at the root of all of this. We just spend mm -hmm. so much of our energy managing the anxiety without going after that little leak. Yeah, you don't realize that that trickle is actually going to affect your a big picture, long term view and in your relationship with Jesus. Right. So it infiltrates. It's that slow infiltration of of the trickle into your relationship with Jesus, which just makes it colored. It's like a colored lens that you want to be clear that's not. Yeah. Now, the one way to frame it that's helpful to just think about it, uh, I've talked about how that anxiety, if it's the outward expression of the deeper fears, the unbelief, that's heart exposing. That's one way to think about mm -hmm. it. It's beginning to reveal things about you, about who you are and your worship, that if you're willing to not just manage the anxiety, but get behind it, will actually show a lot about who you are and what you're really worshiping. I was I was thinking about the way we the way we deal with one another doesn't often lend itself to inviting this kind of reflection that we're talking about, right? Like uh, I was thinking about during COVID, there was a lot of almost like a um, confrontational approach to fear of uh, come on, get it together. We're not living by fear; we're living by faith. Um, around that time, I don't think it was necessarily in response to all of this. Uh, rhetoric on social media, but uh, Ed Welch wrote an article for the Journal of Biblical Counseling that I think the title of it was uh, "Fear, Fear is Not Sin" or "Fear is Not Necessarily Sin," and essentially says sometimes fear is just a function of being finite and weak in a fallen world. Um, and so, in light of that, what should be our demeanor as we encounter fear in our own lives, as we? encounter fear in others, what should be our demeanor? What's Jesus's demeanor toward us? As he's saying, you know, in Matthew 6 and other places, do not be afraid. 
I think we can hear it as a very stern, like, get it together kind of rebuke, which most often when someone's confronted in a get it together kind of way, it only compounds the fear that they have. How do we receive those? Clearly there's a command there not to, not to be afraid, but how do we receive that in light of the way Jesus rela relates to finite and weak people? Yeah. If you think about Jesus' statement, when he says that, what he's saying is not a stern warning or rebuke. I think what he's saying is like, hey, you don't have to be scared anymore. Like, I am now here. It's a statement of encouragement or emboldening, emboldening the, those who are struggling to say, now you have me. Don't, don't be afraid. You have a savior who not only gets it, but died on the cross for you and is coming back again. So we can face it together. So yes, the anxiety approaches of like, pull, pull yourself from your, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Just start dealing with it. You know, you, you, you messed up, but just fix the problem versus, okay, let's look at what the anxiety shows about what you're really rest. Hmm. Let's just, let's take it as uh, a heart exposing opportunity to figure out where's the leak? How do we find it? And how do we not just simply manage your fear in the moment, your worry in the moment, but how do we rearrange some of the more fundamental things so that this opportunity can be for God's glory because it changes the nature of who you are? Because that's, that's there's an amazing opportunity when anxiety shows up to, to not just help someone temporarily deal with the fear, but rearrange some of the more fundamental things in their heart to learn how to be oriented towards a Savior who really does want to help. So good. That is helpful. I think we all experience this, and as biblical counselors, we have so much knowledge in terms of how to fight unbelief and dealing with anxiety, even in the practical sense. I think personally for me, we aren't immune to anxiety just because we're counselors. In fact, I think we can be hyper aware of it even in our own lives as I, you know, sit here and counsel somebody. And then next thing I know, I leave and I'm dealing with anxiety <laughs> as I'm cooking or cleaning the dishes or doing whatever that knowledge doesn't necessarily translate into practice. And I think we need to be careful there not to uh, know so much without putting those that knowledge into a day-to-day -day practice. But I'm wondering how much of that needs to be in community and how much of that can we, can we do as an isolated person or as an independent person? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously I'm sitting in the middle of Nine Mark Central so it's a perfect question for like our our little setting where we emphasize that you know the church gathering a compelling community mm -hmm. where we're gathered together not just simply because we're here to be consumers but we're here to partner together to lock arms together to jury to heaven together mm -hmm. i keep saying that we're together because that's the the part of it there's a unity in us being able to work, work, work on these things, not by ourselves, but in a community of faith where I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't want, I don't want anyone to fight the anxiety by themselves. Mm-hmm. I think they can fight the anxiety much better if they're willing to be humble and draw others in. And just to say to anybody listening, if you're not in a community where you feel like you have anybody around you that really would do that, that's a good reason then to go find a church where yeah. teach the scriptures faithfully, but you don't just want a pulpit where they proclaim truth. You want a community where they really do live it out. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking about two leaders who maybe I'm, I'm thinking about myself, leaders who lead at a certain kind of capacity, whether it's at a church or in a ministry, and they maybe feel like they shouldn't be struggling with anxiety or they shouldn't be feeling this particular way. And they find it hard to share because they should know better. Would you speak to the person who is the pastor or whomever that might be? What did they do? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the one side, I just want to be careful of leaders always talking about themselves. We put that danger out there always and making it about them in a a, a ministry that's oriented around their cult of personality. Mm. If we remove that danger, then there's a lot of room to be honest and vulnerable. Mm. So I had a, I mean, I had a a evening talk for our our church um, and it's a signed text that the the preachers are given. I mean, whether the, whether the senior pastor attended or not, I ended up getting the anger verse right out of James one and <laughs> like, well, give the counselor the anger verse. So I honestly shared about a season of anger and conflict. Mm-hmm. I had with one of our children with that child's permission to the whole congregation. I just was really vulnerable with the church about what my sins were, but what had God had done and was doing and working me, working, working through those things with me. I think there's a room for us to be honest if we think wisely about how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that sets the tempo then for the rest of the congregation uh, to, to be able to do that. Now, I would avoid, because there's a celebrity culture and evangelicalism, so be really careful about how pastors build churches around them and not around Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if we have that danger in mind and we're careful about it, then there's a lot of room then to be able to be honest with our congregations and be straightforward about the things that we're wrestling with. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. How would you, well, let me rephrase that. If there is someone who is unsure of if they are concerned in a way that's helpful and a good godly expression of that versus a chronic stumbling struggle with anxiety on a regular basis, how does someone know when they need to come get counseling? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is find the most godly person, most godly, mature, wise, loving person in your community. Go and have lunch with them and just be brutally honest. Let, let somebody has a lot of love and a lot of wisdom in on your life and then ask them that question. Because yeah. I could throw out generic principles of when and when not, but the, the, the X factor is knowing that person's long-term history and struggle. So it's just a, having a loving person in their life who's got a lot of wisdom and experience with life and committed knowledge of the scriptures and applies that. But that's, that's the thing I would say. Like Find that person in your church and be honest with them about your life and then ask them 
is this a long-term issue and I need to get a lot more help? In which case, where do I go? Or is this, you know, something else? It's a short-term thing that I need to learn to work on. In which case, will you help me? Show me how to do that. That's what I would say. So some of the people who come to us for counseling are maybe people who are disconnected from community. And um, let's say, let's assume that the convictions are already there to say this needs to be a, a church that faithfully preaches the word and believes the gospel. And beyond that, what what are some things that that you would encourage that person to look for to find the kind of community where it's safe to say, hey, I've got struggles. I need people around me. I need accountability. I need encouragement. What are the kinds of things that they should look for maybe on a Sunday morning or just in interacting with the people there? Well, I am going to, number one, look for a church where it's committed to the clear exposition of scripture, because I don't want the message coming out every Sunday morning to be oriented around the pastor's thoughts and what the pastor's opinion is. I want God's word to set the tempo for the church. Mm. This is why I, I am a big fan of expositional preaching. And I think communicating God's word to God's people and centering it on what God's what God's message is from that text is the most important thing we get from the pulpit Sunday mornings. Second thing, uh, I'm, I'm committed to a congregation where you hear there's just a lot of prayer that's typical of part of the church. I've been surprised at teaching on the road, sitting in a lot of churches, how little prayer is a part of the public worship. And yet I think you can tell a lot about a church if prayer is a central part of what they do. Because mm. it shows their understanding of their need to ask for God's help and not to basically make it about what they think should happen. So that would be a second, that would be a good indicator for me, a community that's steeped in prayer, not just a few prayer warriors in the corner. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the corporate gathering gives clear indicators that this church is committed to prayer would be a second thing. A third thing would be like my experience of community, what kind, what am I running into? Because every community has a wide range of people. You've got, you know, the really mature, but you got the really immature. But my question is, how do the mature deal with the immature? It's like, is, is it a loving community where there's a wide range of people with all their, their strengths and their weaknesses, with their vices and foibles and all that kind of, is, is it a loving community? that's committed to one another's good and that cares about each other's interests. The negative way people describe it is it's a church that's going to get into your stuff. That's what the critics say. They, they, they want a church where it's going to be more superficial and nobody's going to mess with my stuff. That's not what I want. Actually, I, what, what I want a church is that it cares enough about me that if I don't show up on Sunday, somebody's going to call. I want a church where like, if I don't show up for a few months, actually somebody really cares enough that they're going to follow, follow up with me and say, where mm -hmm. are you? Love you? What's going on? Mm. I want a church where if I show up and I say to someone, I'm not doing well, they're not just going to pass me off on a pastor, but that person is going to say, well, how can I help? Well, <laughs> that, and, and I do want leadership to be involved. I want pastors to be trained. I want, I want pastors to care about this, not just to be in the pulpit, but I just, I want a sense that the community cares too, and that they're going to be engaged. And that's a pretty good indicator of like, turn to the person next to you and say, life is hard right now. 
Let's just see how they respond. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. that every member respond perfectly and some people respond more immaturely, but the quality of the kind of reactions that's typical of that congregation, it don't matter a lot to me if I want to stick around. I could say more, but that just gives mm-hmm. us something. Yeah. Yeah, I once heard that, you know, the, the test of community, it really comes down to, you know, is this a place where I can confess my sin and, and how will that be received? Yeah. And that's a, that's a scary thing, right? Because it can, it can either be received as, what are you talking about? <laughs> What's the sin thing you're talking about? Or it can be received with the kind of utter harshness that just says, this, this is not a, this is not a safe place to talk about where I need to grow. Actually, Brian, I thought of one more, I'll just throw in that adds into that. Is the pulpit setting an agenda to be honest about hard conversations? Mm. So just the example of, you know, Sunday night, our senior pastor in our, our evening fellowship meeting talked about, because there's so much in the news right now about abuse and how abuse is handled in churches. He just went ahead and gave some general thoughts and had an interaction with the congregation over it. I just appreciate, like, we don't just deal with it as staff. Like, we have open conversations about hard things. Oh. And that, that, are, are the leaders going to speak about her things? Are they going to be honest about it publicly? Are we going to be frank about some really difficult things in the Christian life? Hmm, that's good. I'm thinking about all the questions about anxiety I want to ask now. <laughs> Uh, no, we could be be finished here. Uh, Deepak, what are some resources that you would point people to? I know that Paul Talgis wrote the 31-day uh, devotional on anxiety. Not you, but Paul, not to be. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, got confused yeah. there. Uh, are there other resources that you would want to point to? Yeah, so um, Paul Talgis wrote uh, the 31-day devotional on anxiety. Um, Ed has written, Ed Welch obviously written a couple of things. He wrote the devotional, the New Growth Press series. That's the 51-day devotional uh, on, on anxiety. And then he also has Worry, Fear, and the God of Rest, which is his larger volume on it. Now, that's a chapter book on it, which is an excellent volume. It's got short chapters. It's a thicker read, but it's got a lot of good content in there. And then New Growth Press took the the um, the the chapter book and actually turn it into a workbook and we've used that in small group settings. Uh, okay. It's a very helpful workbook that you can use in a small group format to to do kind of anxiety studies amongst members. It's user friendly enough that if you got a competent small group leader, you can give it to them and they can lead a study just fine. Got enough tools mm-hmm. in for them to be able to do that within the congregational setting. That's a, I mean, that's a couple of different resources. Yeah. My favorite articles out of JBC, like Robert Jones wrote an article, David Paulson has an article that I often refer to with members and hand out for them. There's little booklets in the New Growth Press series. So Julie Lowe wrote a booklet about children struggling with anxiety and how to help them in that New Growth Press series and a Mm -hmm. number of others that we could, we could comment. I also think, uh, the tried and true trusting God, Jerry Bridges. I just, I love using that with people struggling with anxiety because it just gives a big picture, foundational understanding of trusting God in the midst of all those things. So love it. Thanks, Deepak, for being here. Yeah, Thanks glad for to joining us. Done. I think this was a great topic for you to, to speak on. <laughs>
Amusingly so, considering I've never written on it, but I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Now you can write your book. You did. <laughs> there you go. You've been listening to This Versus That, a podcast of Anchored Hope Virtual Counseling. To learn more about this episode or our ministry at Anchored Hope, visit anchoredhope.co. We believe God has an important role for you and the church to play in the Great Commission. Don't know what the Great Commission is? That's all right. The Missions Course is a six-week online study that reveals God's heart for the nations and invites you to play your part in it. We've designed this course to tech nicely in between classes, while you're making dinner, or on your daily commute. Missions isn't just for them, it's for you too. Use the code Anchored Hope to take $10 off your registration. Visit themissionscourse.com to learn more and register today.